Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. And today's episode is all about hunting to kill, not just hunting for the sake of hunting. If you don't think there's a difference, keep listening. Every once in a while, something so simple but profound smacks me upside the head like a tetherball. Does anybody actually play tetherball anymore? While hunting elk earlier this month, I had a realization as I watched some mule deer spook from their beds that I can very easily switch between hunting to kill and hunting to hunt, but only one, you know, really serves me most of the time. So how's that, my friends? Clear as the average Southern river that can barely hold a population of catfish? If so, keep listening and I'll try to make this a hell of a lot easier to understand. The forecast was actually pretty great if you are an ambush guy, and I am, and you are not a great caller, which I also am. A high-pressure system had rolled over a never-to-be-named over-the-counter unit in Colorado, and I had pointed my truck down and to the left for 1,100 miles of solo road time. My elk hunting partner, who by the way is a savage in the mountains, had been scouting elk hard for us. He had also been keeping tabs on some mule deer and a few bears since we both had tags for just about everything that might walk by on one of our calling setups, or more likely, into a pond or a small water hole to grab a drink. Now, Tyler knows mountain animals better than anyone, and if there is a sidebar to this podcast, it's that hunting with someone who is really, really good is such a benefit. I know that sounds simple, but I'm not joking here. 
And this is something you see in, I don't know, just probably just about every facet of life. If you play guitar, find someone who is better than you. They can teach you something or at the very, very least, motivate you to get better. Uh, if you have a bird dog, spend some time around a good trainer. If you are a dipshit whitetail hunter trying to level up on your high country western game, do what you can to buddy up with someone who knows what they are doing. It's a true game changer. So anyway, even though I had sworn to never, ever, ever, ever hunt the first week of elk season in Colorado again after a few earlier season not-so-great hunts, life and you know just the hectic schedule of it all got in the way this year and it was first week or nothing for me the plan instead of being a straight up call fest like a dreamy elk hunt was going to involve a mix of ambush sits and some roaming around calling but it would be soft cow calling we knew the bugling wasn't likely to cut it so we knew that we had to do some other stuff to be successful here's the thing though you can know what you need to do to be successful and still not do it. In fact, that's the point of this whole podcast. And let me tell you something. If you do just that, you're not alone. We all do it. It's kind of our default mode. And it's something we should at the very least all think about. Now, this didn't hit me until the second day of my hunt with Tyler. The first day after packing in the previous afternoon before the opener and setting up our bivy camps, I greeted the elk world while perched in a stand over a pretty damn good-looking pond. As the sun rose, which was not readily visible to me for hours considering I was tucked way down in a bowl, the thermals stayed pretty consistent, which is always nice in the mountains. An hour into the morning, I saw a lone doe sneak off to go bed. I thought, it's cool, at least I'm around some muleys. An hour after that, I heard a cow call in the dark timber above me, and then a lone bull bugle. It felt like it was a matter of time. An hour after that, I heard the unmistakable sound of elk crashing through the brush, and I watched as two young but legal bulls circle around behind me at maybe 80 yards. It felt like I was in the epicenter of elk activity, and that the heat of the midday would bring down a thirsty bull or some cows. It really didn't even bother me too much when two hunters crested the ridge above me, gave me a dejected wave, and then bugled with all their might as they worked out of my life. But then I went dead. Now, I had songbirds to watch and those annoying dwarf mountain chipmunks, but that was about it as I sat there baking away while the sun melted my snacks. Now, eventually, the world spun enough to get the sun out of my life, and the evening set in. All felt right, but no bull showed up. I spent a shade over 14 hours on stand that day, and while it was physically the easiest day of my elk hunting career, mentally, it was one of the toughest. The next morning, I settled back in there and I thought, there's no way a bull won't get thirsty today and come in at some point. But by 11 a.m., I had had enough. I climbed down, threw on my pack, and I hiked up to the nearest ridge to make some coffee and hunt like you're supposed to when you're in the mountains. While sipping some expired Starbucks instant coffee and looking at OnX, I decided to sneak through a long band of dark timber just to see what I could find. And what I found was dead, calm, steep timber that was not really ideal for stalking. The only animals I encountered were two mule deer does that let me get to like 10 yards before they busted out, which not only scared the living shite out of me, but also reminded me of something. When I was sitting on stand, I was hunting to kill. The conditions favored that setup. And the odds were that if I spent enough time, something should visit and offer me a high odd shot. 
Instead, I was not very skillfully sneaking around the mountains, which was basically just hunting to hunt. And even though it was what my heart wanted, I knew it was a bad idea. Well, I eventually overrode my instincts and I climbed into that stand for the rest of the day. At one point in the mid-afternoon, I had a nice five-point bull come running in randomly, but he ran right into my scent stream where he pulled a 180 so fast, it was almost like it didn't happen. That two-second encounter, that was my action for the day other than those mule deer that I blew out. Now the following morning brought more of the same. Tyler and I decided we weren't around the concentration of elk. He hoped we would be in that spot. So we pulled our camp and hiked into a different pond to sit. And while there, just waiting on a bull to come in, we noticed a brand new trail camera on a tree. And then we looked over to our left and saw that there was a tree over the pond that had been trimmed very recently by a chainsaw. And it was even outfitted with a brand new climbing stand on the bottom. You could call that strike two, I suppose. The third spot, we packed for five days of bivy life and hiked in. This time, I brought a saddle and three climbing sticks because the water was six miles deep. Now, I mean, the water that I was going to hunt was six miles into the mountains. I wasn't hunting a mountain pond that was six miles deep. It was also surrounded by elk and mule deer rubs, fresh tracks, and as beautiful of a location to hang off of a tree as I have ever seen in my life. When I saw it, I told myself, I'm going to sit here as long as the wind works for me for as many hours as I have to. I mean, it was only going to get drier. Was only going to get hotter and the elk should have only been getting pushed up to us by the day as more and more people hunted lower and pushed them up now the first evening i saw nothing except a turkey which was kind of a surprise at ten thousand feet the next morning i didn't even see a turkey but that afternoon i climbed in just as the thermal started to suck down the mountain and 10 minutes later i heard the sound of a stick crack then another three bulls were on their way in and while the lead bull didn't like what he smelled he didn't spook too hard, and he eventually gave me a shot. The shot didn't go as well as I hoped, mostly because it was pretty much the point where I was melting down to nothing from elk fever, but it went well enough that he only went 200 yards, so I'm not going to complain about it. The bull, you know, probably a squeaker into Pope and Young, and way better than I could have hoped for, he came from a few different things. The first that I have to give credit to is Tyler's scouting. That was huge. The next was that the conditions were just right for sitting water. The third was that I was hunting there to kill, not wandering around hunting for the sake of hunting. That one is important. Think about how often we do this to ourselves in the whitetail world. The easiest to understand, and probably the best way to really frame this up, is the field edge stand, or hell, any stand with a lot of visibility. Now, you know, if you hunt western whitetails on a river bottom, Every stand option might fit into this category. But even then, especially if, say, I don't know, the hunting public guys shoot a big buck in your spot and then the masses show up to repeat Zach's success, those open country deer will suddenly become small pockets of cover type of deer. Pressure pushes deer into the cover, period. It just does. And the reason the deer behave so differently on those Sportsman's Channel shows is because you're literally watching deer that receive little to no hunting pressure. The bucks that stroll into a food plot in broad daylight are bucks that have done so for years without negative repercussions. If you're hunting those deer, then you don't need this podcast. If you're not, think about it this way. How often do you think those soldiers over in Ukraine walk straight across the field on their way to the front lines? 
Probably not often, because even if it might be a poor comparison, danger is danger. Expose yourself to it unnecessarily. That's a dumb idea, my friends. Deer aren't soldiers, and neither are we. But we are the worst thing to happen to deer since wolves. Hell, we're worse in some ways. They know it. And the more we remind them of it, the more they say, hmm, I think I'm just going to hang out in this thicket to avoid all those Elmer Fuds sitting on the edges of fields and staring down cleared power lines. We know this, yet we go sit where we want to sit. Why? Well, first off, we just have our favorite setups. We all have a spot or two that is just a confident spot. And seeing a few deer almost every time we hunt is often good enough. But what if that spot is the same spot where you never, ever, ever see a good buck? I have a spot like that on a farm in southern Minnesota. I love hunting it. It's good morning or evening. It doesn't matter. Early in the year, late in December, it's one of the most consistent stand sites for seeing deer that I've ever found in my life. But I've only ever seen a handful of good ones in there, and I've only ever killed one. The man hours on stand there versus the tags filled on good bucks, it's not so great. We just can't help ourselves, though. So instead of going to where the deer like to go to avoid us, we ride out these dead programs and try to spruce them up with calls or scents or whatever. But that's a lost cause, mostly, as well. Deer, just like elk and turkeys, are most callable where they are most comfortable. I've talked about this a lot. And they are most comfortable where they feel the least amount of danger. I actually think, and this might sound Captain Coco Puffs crazy, that pressure deer just generally grow suspicious of open areas in daylight. Well, they use them, and boy, will they leave plenty of deceptive sign in these areas as they rub, scrape, and throw deer-level raves at midnight in these spots. But daylight movement in these areas? That's a different story, even during the rut. And I know you're sad to hear that, but it's true. The rut can make those spots better but they won't be as good as some staging area back in the thick stuff or a banging crossing on a ridgetop located deep in the timber. Knowing that, how do you fight that immense gravity of hunting where you want to hunt instead of hunting some spot to kill? Well, this is what's cool about hunting and a lot of non-theoretical science. You can test this shit out. You want to sit a meadow on some public land in Nebraska because it's absolutely ringed by scrapes? Go ahead, do it. Sneak in there and set up. Then pay attention to what you see. The deer will show you all you need to see to know if it's worth hunting. And man, you should listen to them. If it's just does and fawns and scrappers, and then just does and fawns, and then just random deer, the spot was okay to begin with, but is burned out now, and you're hunting a spot just to hunt it. You know, the same goes for just about any spot. If you hunt it because you like hunting it, but not because of what the deer do there, you're hunting to hunt. Scouting, in-season scouting, is probably the best key, the most important thing to break out of that mindset. But it's also worth considering the odds. Again, this is just head game stuff, but it helps me because when I'm hunting to kill, I'm often not seeing that many deer, but I do get a boost from my confidence in a spot. I think, well, it's mid-October. The rut is too far off to save me. The pressure from a month of the season has been pretty intense, and the weather is mild. What are the odds of a big buck coming into a bean field and shooting light right now? Where I hunt, in most places, not so great. So what would give me better odds? A buck browsing his way along an old clear cut? Yep, those are better. 
What if that edge of a clear cut offers him a pretty safe travel route given prevailing, I don't know, westerly winds? Well, now, now that's even better. Now, what if that route also takes him across a little stream where he can grab a drink while staying deep in the cover? Now we're talking. But the downside is that I have to go in extra early because the hike is far and I want to be quiet. I also noticed that since it's thick in there, my visibility is going to be pretty limited. Couple that with the reality that I only have a couple of good shooting lanes to the best trail, and now I know that my sit might be boring and full of anxiety if a good one does show. But what are the odds? If I hunt that way, I'm hunting to kill. It's a spot where a good one should be, and if the sign supports it, I have every reason to believe that's true. So while it's easier and less stressful to hunt to hunt, I have a better chance of having a good encounter if I do some extra work and I hunt to kill. But you want to know what's worse than that, though? This almost never works. I mean, it does, but it's hunting. So it mostly doesn't. That might mean that you have to hunt to kill through several spots in a season just to get one chance. But I would rather have one good close encounter with a buck who thinks he has won the game than some long-distance sightings from an easier setup with better visibility. Do you know why? Because my odds of outsmarting him and killing him in a spot like that are higher. They still aren't great, but they are much better than if I phone it in and I sit a stand that I just like to sit because the hike is easy, it takes me 300 yards from the truck, and will almost guarantee a sighting of some kind of deer. There is a difference to this stuff, my friends. I bet if you could follow around some of the best public land whitetail hunters out there, you'd spend far more time in the thick stuff than you would in the open. In fact, I know you would. If you were so lucky to be guided on a hunt by some of those folks, you'd also start to develop a little bit of claustrophobia over the spots you sat in because they'd be tight. But the first crack of a stick or the first sighting of a big brown body coming your way would change things in a hurry. You'd feel it like that tether ball swinging tightly around a pole and slapping you straight in the dome. You'd realize that you're not hunting the spot just for the sake of hunting, but you're sitting somewhere on the belief that you will kill there right now. To me, there is no better feeling. Now, maybe you're different and deer hunting is just purely an excuse to escape the suckiness of normal life. That's perfectly okay. And I'm real happy for you to have that outlet. But if you want more out of hunting and it means something to you to come out of the woods heavier than you went in, then ask yourself, ask yourself all season long when you go to sit, am I hunting to hunt today or am I hunting to kill? Do that and tune in next week because I'm going to break down confidence and how important it is to not only be a successful hunter, but also to level up your enjoyment of hunting. That is it for this week, my friends. I'm Tony Peterson. This has been the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. As always, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your support for this podcast and for all of our meat eater content. I really appreciate it. If you want to support us more while leveling up your whitetail game further, check out our how-to videos on the Wired to Hunt YouTube channel and visit themeateater.com slash wired to read weekly articles by Mark, myself, and a whole bunch of deer killers. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. 
I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.